I am Lang, and this is Studio, and I've... welcome to Time. No, it should be Lang and Time. <laughs> welcome to the studio would be way better, but whatever. Hey, <laughs> Lang Time Chat here, um, episode 31. Yeah. And gonna going to share a little screen here, and then hit play. You can do... Um... There we go. Um, we are talking today about evolving a language family. Oh, that sounds like fun. Making a little little conlang family. Um, this is a topic that we have been asked about um, a few times, really. And so I thought it would be good to start here. So just first and foremost, as you know, a reminder, a language family is really just a way that we talk about a group of languages that can be historically traced back to the same mother language. And so they come from the same historical source, which means that if you are creating a conlang family, that means you're making multiple languages from the same protoforms. And so just like put that out there before we start, because I don't want to make assumptions. That's good. <clears throat> um, I approve. Well, thank you. Thank you. And this is something that I know um, David has done um, I guess I have. a little bit. Yeah. Uh, because for High Valerian, you also needed to make um, Ostapori yeah. Valerian. But he also, you know, way back when, uh, this would have been in, let's see, I was in that room. So it would have been 2001. Um, we did a little, um, a little uh, language family experiment on the Conlink list where a number of us took the same proto-language and each of us evolved um, our own version of it. Mine was called Fanglutzen. Fanglutzen. That sounds like, um, oh, what's the thing that they play in the office? Jim and Pam, uh, the when they have Flunkerton. the office. Flunkerton, thank you. Like that's what it reminds me of. It, and it's uh, it, it sounds like it had about as much thought put into it, the name does. Um, and then the name was probably better than the language itself. Yeah, um, that is amazing. Um, and so what we're going to be talking about, like some advice that that maybe will help if you're going to be doing this and ways to think about um, different kinds of situations that can happen historically. It's, of course, not going to be exhaustive of all the ways that languages can can change within families but just to give you some some different ideas if this is something you're interested in doing um, of course this also means that you do need a protoform so remember that all of this is based on you coming up with some protoforms uh, to start the whole process mm -hmm. um, the number one thing, though, that I think that you need to start with is to figure out some sort of timeline and it doesn't and I don't mean like specific like 50 years later, this happens. None of that. Just really just saying, I want, you know, this speaking community to break off here. I want this to break off here. So that way you can keep essentially by stage of development, which languages are following the same path, which are going different, you know, some sort of timeline. I mean, it's not a bad idea to have a real timeline. It's just more effort than I usually put in. More effort. And it's also difficult, I think, um, in other world development to really think through how long do these changes take to happen? Um, and so like, because sometimes we get questions like, is this realistic for 100 years, you know, within a language development? And honestly, the answer is always it depends, because it's like, were they relatively stable for those 100 years? Or were they all over the place? Were the were the speakers going through great changes? Were they, you know, it's like, you really have to know what happens in those 100 years. And like, you can't even compare, like, if you look at English's development, you look at 100 year segment versus another 100 year segment, and you're going to see like, very different amounts of changes happening, yeah. but it's all because of what was going on, you know, politically and and um, within the speaking communities. And so I think it's really, you can definitely create an actual timeline. I'm not saying don't do that, but I'm also saying it's not necessarily something you have to do to be able to make a language family. Mm -hmm. All right. And so start with a timeline. In your timeline, you want to make sure you indicate how many daughter languages you want, because... It's kind of important to know if you are making a family. Yeah. How many are you creating? It's got to be at least two. It's to have a family that is best. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. 
And so I'm going to stop here on my advice for the timeline and go okay. to an actual little timeline image and just say, sure. like, let's just say you want three daughter languages. And so they all, this is situation one, which unfortunately our little speaker screen may cover situation one up in the corner, which is really unfortunate as you're watching this. Can you shrink it? I, unfortunately, I found out the hard way that on Zoom, whatever you do to your screen on the speaker view does not take away the speaker view. Oh, man. Unless you completely turn off the camera. I think if somebody knew that, they would have probably put, say, the word situation one down there. You would think, but I forgot that when we were doing this, but whatever, right on. it's fine. It's fine. Mm -hmm. Situation one. Got it. You know what? Most of you are listening anyway and not even watching. And so it doesn't even matter what the screen looks like. That's You're right. just listening along. They're not watching. They're just sitting there on their phones. So situation one is that we have some proto-language A and three groups split off roughly the same, you know, time frame. And so it just goes in three directions and we've got languages B, C, and D and they're it's absolutely gorgeous slide. I love it. Oh, thank you. Mm -hmm. um, so this is situation one. Mm -hmm. And this situation is similar to what we did. Well, it really is what we did for our proto sketch challenge for link time chat in episode 25. That's right. Because yeah. we had one proto form and then we had six of us um, ended up doing the challenge. And so we ended up with like six daughter languages that all broke off from the same proto forms. And like there was no communication among us to be like, oh, we want to have these changes in common. So any changes that were in common were purely coincidental. Three completely, well, six in that case, completely different languages um, resulting from it. And so um, all that is to say the daughters split off from the proto form, all language developments independent from the others. This is situation one. Okay. This is one way that language families start I'm developing. I'm really excited for situation two. But first, a little example. Okay. So this is from the challenge. No. Yeah, look at and that. so this is just to show, like, again, how different things can happen. So we had a base a proto form in um, the Langtime Chat Challenge, Kuya, which meant person, mm -hmm. in case you forgot. Um, and then three of the six resulting were Kue, because we had some tonal languages, Kuja was yours, and then Koye was another one. And so like, you can see, like, they sound very different. Of course, you can see similarities because they were based on the same root. So it's like, you still have some, some of those similarities there, but they were really quite different. Most of us though, don't have like other people helping us develop a family. Mm -hmm. And so that adds an added layer of challenge because it's you coming up with all the different changes to run each daughter through, right? It's you coming up with all of this on your own. Let me tell you, though, if you trust the conlinger, though, it can be really cool. Um, you know, it could also be like, you know, a disaster if you don't, it's, you know, doing this, you know, mousy little garbage where it's like, oh, don't put mice down like that. <laughs> it's um, this doggy stuff, shall we say? Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. No, it's possumy. Where it's just like, you know, you've gone through the trouble of creating a really cool, authentic daughter language. And then they're like, you know, we decided to just take the words for man and woman and throw them on the ends of verbs and have them be conjugation. And then also child and then also dog and cat. And it's just like, oh God, what have you done? What have you that's, done? That's when that daughter language dies. Is what have that you what done I'm to hearing? my boy? <laughs> so yeah, that does require trust. Mm -hmm. If you do have um, trust in the other conlingers, though, obviously this is sort of an easier way to make sure you have very distinct languages because you're, yeah. you're just doing it on your own. Yep. Um, but most of us, when we sit down to make a language family, aren't going to have that ability. And so there's that added challenge of not getting inside your own head of, am I making these daughters different enough? Mm -hmm. Like, I think that um, it feels like you have to do radical things when you're sitting down and like planning it out, like, oh, I, you know, like all of the changes have to be different. All of them need to be um, completely different. I think we kind of get in our own heads that way when in reality it's like, but remember, the languages still need to look related to actually feel like a family. So, you know, yeah. there, there do still need to be strains that you can really feel those similarities. And also as a way of showing you that sometimes some words just don't change that much in our challenge, 
the word for Daisy started out as Haley and almost every single form in the modern form was Haley. Yeah, it's pretty Maybe good. with tone in it, maybe with a long vowel like Haley. Um, but like the only one that was actually really different was yours. And it was Ile instead of Ailey because there was like some metathesis or something or like one oh. vowel had changed because of something in another. But yours oh. was the only one that like even had a different form. The rest of them were almost identical on the surface. And that's from, again, completely different conlingers not talking to each other and putting, you know, these changes into action. So these letters aren't, probably shouldn't be those letters anymore, huh? Because mine was previously C. Yeah, I was just doing an example, David. <laughs> you don't have to be represented at every slide. Well, I was just saying, I don't even know who this Haley is now. Who is that? Who is that? Who is this C? Um, Why are they getting called my C? I don't know. I was really liking that letter. I, I've just been staring at it. It's gorgeous. Better than D, huh? D for David. No one cares. But, but anyway, <laughs> anyway. So, but that is just a reminder that as you're making these changes and applying them, it's okay if you're like, oh my gosh, these protoforms didn't really change very much across the languages. I mean, this is why we can recognize words in Spanish, English, and, you know, other languages where it's like, oh, those are similar. Yeah. It happens. Yep. Okay. So that's situation one. They cool. all break off all roughly right. at the same time. All right. So sometimes though, um, what you will see is that some language features and shifts are shared among some daughters and not others. And so if this is part of your plan, make sure you indicate, you know, again, where these splits happen. So looking at situation two, this was the original split where it's just A split into three languages at the same time, roughly. However, you could add a bit of a wrinkle and say that language C, David's favorite, split off into two distinct languages, which means that languages E and F are going to share things in common that languages B and D don't. Because if you recall, again, if you're not looking at the screen, there is going to be a PDF of this attached to the, the post on Patreon, of course. Cool. Um, but what's happening here is we start with proto A. It splits off into B, C, and D. B and D just develop as single languages here, but C splits off into E and F. And so this is where you're going to see some of those micro relationships where it's, you know, you can go all the way back to the protoforms and see how they're all related, but E and F are going to be much more similar in form and shape than B and D will be to any of them. Yeah. So this is kind of like, I guess, A would be Proto-Indo-European, B and D are like Armenian and Iranian, and this is, uh, and C would be, um, What's one that only split off into two? I don't know. Only into two. That's yeah, hard. Yeah, I know um, that is hard. Yeah. That is, yeah. David is leaving. It's yeah. so difficult. Yeah. He's leaving. Yeah. Or maybe he's getting resources to be able to answer that question. <laughs> he just he just ups and leaves. Um, but this is another situation that you can have. Again, though, you need to make sure you document um, which changes are applying to which and at which stage. So that way you know, for instance, that you know language E is going to have these features distinct from F, but they still share these in common because that was something that its ancestor did before they split off. Without any sort of input from wherever David went, I'm going to move on to the next one and hope that's okay. You were already done? That was it. Like there's, that was it? I, I have some mega examples coming, but I need to get through these situations. Okay. You disappeared. Proto-Indo-European three. Do you want me to wait until you get this answer? It's uh, not really. Hold on, hold on. Forget it. Never mind. Okay. Thank you. Never mind. All right. Okay. So another thing to think about in your timeline is whether there's any sort of language contact um, going on, or of course, if the language, you know, the speaking community is so isolated that it's completely unaffected by <laughs> everything else around it. And so that leads us to situation three, 
where, for example, we had split off into, we have, you know, languages B and D. Remember C, it's split off into languages E and F. But let's say the speakers of, you know, language F move to a location close to language D. And so it had, some of it had some influence from language D to create language G. Hmm. And so there's some little language contact going on. Um, where now language F has split off because some of its speakers stayed in its original spot. Some of its speakers, though, moved into an area where they had a lot of contact with speakers from language D. Um, this kind of situation usually is going to affect the lexicon most. And so um, on the screen, I have a thicker arrow from the F bar yeah. to indicate that this is still really related more to language F than it is D. But there's going to be enough a lexical additions from language uh, D coming into it, that it really is distinct now and it is its own language, it is G. And this is kind of, um, I won't say similar. Okay, it's kind of similar, um, but you know, like when English was very heavily influenced by um, French and it's like the vocabulary changed a whole lot. The reason I say it, it's not really the same is we don't have an English that was unaffected by the French to say, look, this is how English developed without the French influence, and this is how it developed with it. I was thinking of Romanian. That would with, be a better example. With the Slavic influence. Yes. Because um, uh, this can be a lot of fun. Uh, and of course, like all of these things are a ton of fun, but um, the uh, the sticking point or the difficult part uh, or the time intensive part is that you actually have to have these languages before uh -huh. you can actually do the interesting stuff. Yeah. Um, which is why uh, sometimes it can be fun if like you just have a couple different people working on a couple different families that are supposed to be in the same area. And then, you know, you reconvene after a year, you start the intermingling and be like, I want to work with your language, not with yours. Yeah. I'll take these words from you, but mm, not that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh my gosh. Could you imagine like a model UN situation for conlangers mm. where you're like all in a room together and it's like, all right, listen, I hear your cooking is great. I'm going to borrow some cooking terms and some dishes from you. Yeah. And you know, like you decide really thematically because that's how borrowing happens. It's not just random and piecemeal. It's, oh, you're really, you know, like you've set up quite a trading center. So I'm going to learn certain terms I need for trading, like money terms and, um, you know, specific goods that we're going to want to trade. And mm -hmm. like, this is how it happens. But how cool would that be? And then you could do funny, funny stuff. It reminds me of Japanese. It's like, okay, we're going to take curry from you. Actually, it'd be better if we did this, this and this. Actually, you know what, now it's going to be this. And by the way, it's pretty much our national dish now. <laughs> so don't worry we're still going to call it curry rice borrowed from english and so yeah things like that happen um also this is just within the same family of course you could have another situation mm. situation 3b where one of the daughter languages is influenced from some outside force um, or outside language and so in this slide i've added language h we've now split off again where the uh, language D speakers, one of its communities got influenced from some unknown outside arrow coming in. Uh, it's not at all related to anything that is going on with the rest of the daughter languages. Yeah, and that would be similar to uh, Astapori Valerian being, uh, getting a lot of vocabulary and some structural similarities from uh, Giscari, which mm -hmm. is not from the same language family. Whereas, uh, you know, with the Romanian and Slavic example, they are from the same language family. Right, right. Um, and so, and that adds a, a further interesting wrinkle because um, especially if the languages are so different that the sounds don't really line up in the same way um, because then you get to have some fun decisions about like, yeah, they borrow this word, but they don't have half the sounds or they don't have at all the same syllable structure. And so, you know, how are they going to end up borrowing um, these terms? Again, this would usually be a heavier influence on lexicon, um, you know, from outside sources than anything else. But having to figure out how to borrow those words um, phonetically is fun. Yeah, a really interesting case study would be um, a Thai language, which mm -hmm. has borrowed so much terminology from uh, Hindi and Sanskrit. And the two phonologies, it, it couldn't be more different. It's just, I don't even know how it's done. 
honestly, it, it seems impossible. I mean, there are just so many consonant clusters uh, in, in Hindi and, and no tone. And then, and then, you know, zero consonant clusters in tone <laughs> in, in Thai, but they, they seem to make it work. And that is another interesting thing, especially if you have a tonal conlang, um, because it's, I think, easier to envision borrowing from a tonal language to a non-tonal, where it's like, well, you just get rid of the tones and whatever you're left with, it's totally, it's going to be like a totally different word if like they ever heard it in the native language that you borrowed it from, kind of like how we borrowed all the, you know, terms from mm -hmm. Chinese and did not bring tone with it. Yeah. I think it's much harder to conceive how are they going to add tone in a way that's meaningful and relevant to the way that the language system works um, in terms of like, is it then based on similarities of, well, these syllables quite often end up having high tone. So it's just going to like by analogy have high tone. Is it like borrowed words have a certain tonal pattern and it's like, you just kind of do that generically unless speakers do something different. Like it's so interesting to me to think about how that could work. Well, it's kind of like with, um, English, when we hear words from a language that has tone like Chinese, and then we repeat it back Englishly, like we hear the tone and assign stress. Somehow we figure out how stress should be and we assign it. Uh, the same happens in reverse. They hear stress if you're speakers of mm. tonal language, and they figure out how that maps to the tone the closest. And it, nice. they just kind of go with it. Um, and yeah, there are rules that will change depending on the language. So you just have to kind of set up your tonal language and then figure it out once you have uh, stressed words to borrow. That is, that is wild. Seriously, can't stop thinking about our model conlang UN that needs to happen now. <laughs> um, and then we got to record the whole thing. Um, all right. So this is just an overview of some of the like major ways that, that languages can break off. And so thinking about how do you want this to happen? Do you want some daughters to share some features and not others? Like, how exactly do you want this to go? I'm gonna do um, a very brief example where I also talk about why documentation is so important. Yeah. Um, very thorough documentation. So that way you keep track of which features are relevant at which point in the timeline. <laughs> so that way when you need to create a new word, and you know, like, okay, I want this to be a really old word. So it's going to go all the way back to the proto stage. That's one thing. But what happens when you want to create a new word that, you know, language C developed. And so it is not shared with languages B and D, but it is passed down to languages E and F and then run through their changes. Like you need to know where the language was when that new word was developed at whatever point. Yeah. Thorough documentation, which, you know, David and I excel at <laughs> at all times. Very conlanging. Oh, yeah. All right, so for each stage of development, you wanna make sure you have track of what sound changes are applicable like up to this point and then from this point on, uh, what grammar developments have there been? Um, and so where's the you know current state of basic grammar features? And um, that will come, that's important for everything from like understanding if there's already inflections to what derivations there are. Um, to also like how compounds will be formed, things, you know, things like that. And then also any lexical, you know, growth or shifts as, as speakers move about, new words happen. So a quick example. Are you ready for this? Oh, I'm super excited. Okay. So for one conlang I did, like I actually had envisioned a language family. Okay. Um, it has not yet <laughs> happened, but I envisioned it. So I have a whole scenario. And I have like historical reasons for these speaking communities to be like breaking off. And I actually did a whole timeline thing by year. Like I was that person because I am that person. And um, when did this happen? Um, well, I mapped this all out. It's been a while. It's probably 2017. Really? I mapped it all out. Um, it's That's been a while. I have a whole story going on. It's nothing's happened with it, but it's still a story in my head. Can something still happen with it? something can always happen with things at some point in some future you, if i ever have time to do things in some future are you still interested well, yeah how about we do the quick example and then All we right. can talk about okay <laughs> the story which is not the like i i think that even the people listening are quite intrigued <laughs> so i mean funny. i don't have something like this all right so mm -hmm. here was the map i drew 
And so this is a hand-drawn map of an island. And this is where my language family was going to grow or maybe will grow someday. Um, there was uh, there are a variety of terrains, which plays an important role too, because this um, island offers sort of a bit of all the, the climates that you could hope to have from um, like kind of marshy forests to what I call the, the badlands, which is like not desert because there are these giant trees that like don't grow leaves, yeah, but like so enormous that they kind of take over the landscape and you can live in them. It's the ghost section. That's where the ghosts are like in Link. Oh, that would be. Um, there's also like a really large mountainous area um, that for most of it is, you know, not populated just because it's so mountainous. Oh. There's even a tundra, like there's little, those little purple dots are the tundra flowers. Are these mountains? Mm -hmm. I thought those were types of trees. I thought these were mountains. Sorry. No, no, no. no. Mountains up top. Mm -hmm. um, and this is some giant waterfalls mm -hmm. coming off the mountains where it drops. Look right? at that. And then we go into like a hilly region. And so it's like lots of hills as it then kind of flattens out. And then what you get at the left are the rocky cliffs. And mm -hmm. so it's like, it just drops off, huge drop off. Whereas like, so there's no way to port on the west side. That's like huge cliffs. If you were to come into the island, you'd have to come in on the south side because that's the only place that you can actually get in easily. Um, and so anyway, yeah, this is my little island. So we've got mm -hmm. all these different terrains. Mm -hmm. The speakers of the original language came from another land, but they were run out of it. And so the proto stage is that they were somewhere else, right? And then they, they came into that Southern area where it's possible to actually get into the island. Um, at the proto stage, this is what I've labeled as language A. You know, they've already got an established word order. They've got tense subject verb agreement, some noun cases and basic derivations. But what's important is that these inflections are set. They haven't yet all become like so grammaticalized that they're actually attached to roots yet, right? Like, it's just like, they've got these in the proto stages. When they get to their new location, of course, there's some immediate, you know, language changes that happen just because they need to describe brand new surroundings. And so, you know, like some new compounds and things like that to describe these things that their language didn't have words for because they just didn't have it in their old location. And so on this, by the way, what I did was I took that hand-drawn map and then I outlined it and then I just color coded it by region. So that way it was easier to see because it was really hard to write on top of the, the map with all of the, the coding on it. Mm -hmm. And so this is where the language starts. Wow. So this is example. Now, from here on out in the example, I'm going to actually give forms. This is not a language I've actually developed yet. This is just, I want to show you how you could end up with some very different languages from one proto. Okay. So I, I created just some roots, put them together and created a sentence in proto. Proto A. And so the sentence is, a rabbit chased a firefly near that tree. How is it pronounced? Um, like it looks, I've done your romanization system. Okay. So, And uh, for those who aren't watching and are simply listening, how would that be pronounced? Oh, I will pronounce it, but you need to not judge my pronunciation. Wow. Um, <laughs> you are. are you saying how is it like, how do I not judge your pronunciation? I get it. I get it. All right. So... I like that. Okay. So this is the proto stage. Now to break it down, is the word for rabbit. It's just a root. Uh, breaks down to spark bug, which was a new compound because they didn't have fireflies until they moved to this area. Moose is a verb meaning to chase and brai is a, a root meaning tree. The grammatical portions are that hook, um, which originally meant to take, um, has become used as an object marker. So for like the accusative case, fee is a verb meaning to finish, and that is being used as a perfective um, marker for the, the chasing. Dao comes from a root meaning ground or place, and it's used as a proximal demonstrative. So it's that tree. And then iach 
uh, comes from a root meaning to stand, but it is also now being used like grammaticalized as a postposition, meaning near, close to, or next to. And so that's the grammatical pieces that have come together. Okay, we on board? Mm -hmm. So we're about to do a whole lot of changes, four stages. All right, stage one, community breaks off. There's been a major rift. It has to do with magical powers. It's, it's a whole thing. One group of speakers is like done and out very early on in these rifts in the community. And so this is language B and they move out to the West in those rocky areas. And so they're out on the cliffs. And so now we have language A and B. Language A down there in that Southern forested area um, experienced some changes. And so I decided that diphthongs beginning with a high vowel uh, shifted to glide onset. So ya becomes ya, we becomes we, et cetera. And the inflections merge to become suffixes. Compounds are reanalyzed as one word. So now the input was the protoform, which I've already read out loud. The output is now at the end of stage one, those speakers who are still down in that Southern area would say the sentence, Okay, so that's the new, new output for stage one of the language A speakers. B, they broke off real hard. Their diphthongs actually separated. There was a slight sort of glottal stop inserted between the vowels. So it's actually like they became, instead of it became like So they kind of separated. And in closed syllables, the high vowels lowered. Okay, right. So this is language B. This isn't, so I, I was I was mistaking. This isn't like, this is sound change one and this is sound change two. The first one was the people who stayed behind. Yes. The second one are the breakers. Yes. Got They're it. They're the ones that are over on the cliffs now. Okay. So their diphthongs broke and in closed syllables, the high vowels lowered. So E lowered to A and U lowered to O. Yeah. So this is also an introduction, by the way, because A and O are new vowels for the language. Yes. So now the input being the same as the input for language A at the end of stage one, the output is quite different. We have kuel tiu snahok mos fi dau brai yach. Okay. That don't worry. The language B speakers realize real quick that's going to have to be smoothed out. Don't you mm -hmm. worry. All right. So I also have little mid stage slides to remind you where we are. <laughs> stage one. <laughs> A and B have split. B is now on the cliffs. A is still in the southern marshy, beautiful forest area. All right. Are you ready for stage two? Mm -hmm. That was just two changes, by the way. Yeah, I know. All right. Stage two, there are still a lot of speakers down in that southern area in that A, language A speaking community. B, of course, has already been split off, so they're still doing their own thing. However, now another group splits off from that southern portion. They go into the eastern badlands, and, and this is language C. And so every all of these people, they're looking at this island and say, wow, look at this beautiful forested grassy area with two rivers uh, that are right next to each other. And like, yeah, anyway, so that's easy to get through so that we can get to our cliffs and our desert badlands. So do you want to know why? Yeah. <laughs> okay. The, the speakers for B move that way, first and foremost, just because the easier passageway that way, um, but also because they are the non-magics, so they don't have any magical power, and they wanted to be, the cliffs offered more wind power and things that they could use for their technology they were developing, hmm. and so they're using what is available to them for what they need. The, the group that breaks off to the Eastern Badlands are mm. element controllers, and there were more interesting storms and things going on there that they could actually work with okay. and like do things with. Right. So like they have reasons for settling in these okay. areas. Okay. I told you, there's a whole story. <laughs> All right, so stage two, we now have three languages, but again, the largest speaking community is still A down in that Southern area. Okay, so let's just run through some additional shifts that happen at stage two. The A, the Southern speakers, we have three new sound changes. What you see on the slide, if you're looking at the slide, is the input from stage one of language A. So mm. this is the new sort of proto part two form. Yeah. And so that way you can see, well, at stage two, when these new three changes are introduced, this is where, you know, language A stood at the time. 
So now palatal glides um, are going to actually palatalize a consonant if it comes, you know, after a consonant. Diphthongs a and au merge to become a and o. Uh, so now they also have those same sounds. And then when two non-nasal consonants appear side by side, you know, consonant cluster, or not, no, just side by side rather, sorry, not even cluster, the second consonant takes the voicing of the one before it. So we get some voicing assimilation. Um, non-nasal is important because we didn't get voiceless nasals. So here the output is now for language A speakers, the southern speakers, we have quil, chusnahuk, muzvi, dobrayach. And so we've got some, some changes, just slight, but changes going on there. And we got the che, which is very important. Questions, comments? No. You ready for yeah. what's going to happen? These are the language C speakers, and I'm presenting their language next, because if you recall, they're going to have the same input from the language A speakers, because they were down in the South. Right. They've now broken off. And so their two new changes are applying to what they already had come out with at the end of stage one as previous language A speakers. Uh, so here, they also have voicing assimilation, but it goes the opposite direction. And so the first consonant takes the voicing of the one following it. And then initial syllables actually receive the stress here and unstressed syllables lose their coda consonant. If the coda consonant was voiced, the vowel gets lengthened as a sort of compensatory thing. So now language C at the end of stage two is gwil, gyuznahu, musfi, dobrayach. You have a question. Uh, you didn't mark the length? The only Jusnahu. But that lost um a voiceless coda. If the coda consonant is voiced. Got yeah. it. Got it. Got it. Got it. So that only happens if if it was voiced. Here it didn't affect it. Um, and so yeah, Tusnahuk becomes Gyusnahu because this does not have the palatalization. And so the T ya combo is treated as just two consonants. And so that is C. Over on our cliffs, language B, of course, is still shifting because mm -hmm. times are changing. Here, unstressed words lose their unstressed syllable. Stress falls on the penultimate syllable or a final heavy syllable. And compounded forms have the heaviest stress on a head word, but they're still treated as sort of like separate units. They're not quite like joining together like we see words and other things. But here we're starting to have some, some dropping of unstressed, unstressed syllables where it's like, you're in a word that we don't stress anyway, and your unstressed syllable is so unstressed it disappears. Uh, and so now the output for language B at the end of stage two, kuel tisna hok mosfi dabra iach. And so we've we've dropped some things there. Okay, it's actually quite a fun what you can do in just four stages. All right, so here's here's our standings. End of stage two. If you're looking at the slide, what you're going to see is obviously what you see for like language A and language C is much more similar than what you see over in language B, which broke off earlier. Okay, stage three. Finally. Yes, yes. Stage three, we have a group of speakers breaking off and they move to the beautiful hills right at the base of the waterfalls, you know, great, great water source, big rivers, and it's hilly and grassy and beautiful. And so David is like, I get it. I would move there too. This is like when you're doing a draft and like, you know, you, you, you're doing a draft lottery and you're slotted fourth and you're like, oh my God. Then the draft actually happens. And it's like, they chose that one for the first one. They chose that for the second. <laughs> they chose that for the third. And then you're like, all right. I'll take this. Begrudgingly, <laughs> shall I take my rivers and trees? <laughs> and hills. And rolling hills. And rolling hills. All right. So stage three. Down in the South, we still have language A speakers. The community is, you know, of course, growing because population growth, but like in terms of <laughs> people splitting off, <laughs> so a lot of people keep leaving. Um, so stage three A speakers have a couple more changes here where two fricatives um, appearing side by side, second one becomes a stop. So it kind of like fortifies, I guess you could say. It's kind of dissimulation. Dissimulation would be a better way of putting that. 
And then the W everywhere just shifts to a V. It just does. And so the output here is And so this is the end of stage three down in the south. All right, language D, which has recently broken off and moved to the hills. Mm -hmm. um, the coda frequitives are lost. Uh, Those weak fricatives lost in coda position. And demonstratives are reanalyzed as prefixes. Um, and so this is a bit of a grammatical reanalysis going on. And so at the end of stage three, the people in the hilly area would say, And so this is their new output. All right. Over in the Eastern Badlands language C, which looks a bit more still like the other languages than language B does, uh, language C over in the East, the word internal coda consonants are lost. So this is only word internal. If the coda was voiced, vowel was lengthened, and then unstressed case endings are lost and word order shifts to SVO Ooh. because the case endings are lost and we've got like a stack of nouns. So here the output for C is And so this is C. Way over on the cliffs, language B has three major changes. The voiceless codas are lost. The glottal fricative, H, is lost altogether um, because it's like those voiceless codas disappear. The H is just up next. Consonant clusters are broken um, where glides disappear after stops, but an A, an A is inserted in other cases. And so um, here we've got uh, glides, I meant liquids. Oh, I was wondering about yeah, that. Yeah, sorry. I meant to write liquids disappear after stops. Wow, that is embarrassing. Um, but here, so at the end of stage three, the sentence for B now sounds like Wow. And so now that's where B is. So at the end of stage three, once again, you can see that A and D, because they've more recently broken off, share a lot more features than say A, D, and C but they all share more features than B does with any of them because of when things broke off. And then the final stage. A finally like basically loses all standing and the speakers who stay in the South, now I'm gonna call language F because it's like A doesn't even exist anymore. They broke off in two. Hmm. And so speakers moved up to the, the mountains. Those are language E now. They took over the mountain area. Uh, whoever stayed behind the developments now going to call language F because it's like A has split up and it's like not even worth calling it A anymore. I don't really follow that, but I accept it. Well, which one gets called A if you label one A? That one. Just because it's still in the South. Are you saying like most A's went over here? They They kind of split in half. They split in half? Well, I would say if they stayed, then yeah, you call it A. Okay. Then you leave. You don't get to be called A anymore. Yeah, that's not a thing. Yeah, I'll be right back. Well, I'm going to run through changes. You're going to miss them. If... No, I'm coming back. <laughs> okay, so David doesn't support my decision to call it now languages E and F. But I think I even mentioned, yeah, I mentioned on the next slide, I put a little text box, language A is no longer represented because that speaking community broke off into E and F. And so now I'm calling them E and F just to really distinguish like where they are. And I'm waiting for David to return for the big unveiling of what happens in stage four. This is extremely controversial. It is extremely controversial. And, uh, it's my language family though, so I get to decide what to do with it. Well, I'm just saying that we have, uh, of region D uh, don't recognize the rebranding of A as F and we will still refer to you as A. How are you talking about me? I'd be up in E. I, I'm gonna go to those mountains. <laughs> All right. There's just mountains up there. There isn't even any rivers. There's, there's water. There's, there are these isolated lakes, but apparently no rivers in the mountains. But you can stand at the top of the waterfalls. Why would you want to stand at the top of the waterfalls? For the waterfall, the most exciting part is the front at the bottom so that you can see it. Why would you stand at the top of the waterfall? That's the so I can look down part. on you. Unbelievable. <laughs> all right. All right. Regardless of what you call it, we've now got some new shifts that get applied everywhere. All right. 
So these are our mountain speakers up in the mountains, language E. They have three changes that happen. Of course, what they took with them was what they were speaking in the South before they ran off to the mountains. Here, the stop fricative consonant clusters reduce, or consonant consonant, I should say, with the initial stop being deleted. Oh, no, no, I meant consonant clusters because kvu just becomes vu. Um, consonants assimilate in voicing to a following consonant across the board, and then word final voiceless stops become fricatives. Uh, and so here the output at the end of stage four, which is the end of the final stages we're doing for this fun little experiment, is And so that is language E. Mm, language F, or as David calls them, language A, yep. down in the south, just had one change, and it was that code of voiceless consonants are deleted in unstressed syllables. And so is what we're left with here. You'd say that yeah is unstressed because it's a postposition, post and so it's a grammatical word okay. and not like fully stressed. I'll yeah. accept that. Yeah, I meant unstressed syllables for the unit and not for you know yeah. words necessarily. Okay. In um, D over in the hills, they had some more changes. They had actually four changes going on in this stage, where common postpositions are reanalyzed as case. Uh, stop, stop, and fricative, fricative pairs geminate, where the second consonant assimilates to the first entirely. Word final voiceless codas disappear, and stress is typically assigned to the penultimate syllable. And this just affects how it's going to sound. And so here the output is quil chusnahu muzi dobrea. Well, with the, sorry, you have to speak my people's language correctly. I Quil... didn't get the, the geminate, did I? No. Quil chusnahu muzi dobrea. There we go. You got it. Good job on your language. Thank you. Um, language C over in the Eastern Badlands. So they were again like the the you know third people to or second people rather to split off. Uh, the segments ty and dy palatalize and become ch and j respectively, and word final freak. I actually wrote weak fricatives, but I like couldn't even get it out right. Freak. Mm -hmm. Wicketives, uh, those word final ones fortify becoming stops. And so at the end of stage four, language C is Guilmufi Juna Dobreyak. And so that's where we are in language C. And way over on the cliffs, language B, the word final liquids are lost. A copy vowel is inserted after a word final consonant. And speakers show a preference for verb final structures. So the verb ends up migrating over to the end of the clause. So now the final output here is kue tisana odabai. Oh, no, let me get my phrasing right. Kue tisana tisana odabai a mozofi. Yeah. I had to make sure I was saying the right yeah. things together. Because tisana o is like one unit. Kue tisana odabai a mozofi. Yes. Mozofi, sorry. Yes. And so that is language B. And so here is the outputs from, you know, all across the board again. So just for being able to compare at the end of stage four, how different things are. Um, and this was, again, not a whole lot of changes even. Um, and so we haven't even touched on like lexical changes that would happen as, you know, these speakers are moving to new areas. For instance, some ideas I had for like how the lexicon would shift is that over in the mountain region or up in the mountain region, I should say there are no fireflies. And so this word, which is pronounced for them, chuzna, uh, because the huch is a grammatical marker. So chuzna, that compound um, would shift potentially. Um, and for me, I thought that would be a poetic way of referring to stars now because they, they twinkle in kind of wink like little fireflies in the sky. They don't have fireflies, so it's like there's no longer that need to call them, you know, chuzna. They can use this word entirely for something new. Um, over on the cliffs of B, the word for rabbit just generalized to any small animal. Mm. So here, quil as rabbit in the proto form becomes kue, and for them that just refers to any small animal. And down in C, because the trees are so different and gigantic in those badlands, the word that used to mean tree, which is bre in language C, now means bush. <laughs> like they have a new word to refer to like their new concept of what a tree is because mm. they're like gigantic. 
All right. So that those are some ideas for lexical shifts. So again, like we haven't even gone into ways that you can play with, you know, how, how words shift meanings. And also you may have noticed that like there were relatively um, few changes at each stage. The most I had at any one stage was four. Um, and yet you can see like how much things shifted just by having those, those little shifts. The next few slides are really for people who are super interested in the comparisons. And so I'm not gonna read them because we've already gone through them, um, but I've organized the information by branch. So you could be like stage one, here are the changes happening, um, two, three, and four. So that way it's like for language B, you see that at each stage, the, the changes only apply to B because they broke off super early. Um, but you can see like, all of them in order. And so altogether, there were only nine changes that I introduced for language B, even though it like really changed what it looked like. Uh, for language C, there were eight changes altogether. And stage one, the changes are shared for all C through F. But then once it hits stage two, these are only applying to language C. For stage D, again, just kind of showing you like here's D, I think had the most, it had 11 changes altogether. Um, that one had the most, mainly because stage four hit the, the four changes that, that happened, David's language. Yeah. Um, and then language E had 10 changes and language F had eight. And so those slides really, it's like, I took that same information that I read through and put it so that way you could see like, what were all the changes that happened to each branch individually and by stage. Uh, and then color coded them. So that way it goes back and forth between yellow and blue. So that way you could just kind of see more easily where those breaks are. All right. Um, so you can see that not very many changes uh, can, can lead to a lot of different results. And you may have noticed that I recycled quite a few sound changes, things like voicing assimilation, uh, things like codas being lost or otherwise changed. I recycled a lot, but applied them in different orders and they came up with brand new things. And that's really important because I think another thing we get in our head about is like, oh, I've already done assimilation in one branch. I can't do that in another. You totally can. One, it could go in a different direction. So, you know, whether it's, you know, forward assimilation or backward assimilation is going to completely change the results. But two, depending on when you actually have the, the assimilation, again, it's going to affect some units and not others, thus giving you different results in general. And so, like, don't be afraid of using the same rules, but in different places, different orders, different stages, and so on. That was my other thing. What do you have to say? Uh, are, are there more slides or is that a... The final slide. The key is keeping track. <laughs> <laughs> what you've decided for each stage so the daughter languages can develop organically. Um, I want to, um, on that note, I want to go back and I know that if you're not watching, you're not going to be able to see this, but um, something that I found useful in uh, documentation is having the same information present presented in multiple ways. Um, so for example, now that I have, uh, the writing system, right, Valerian, I've got, you know, the Valerian to English dictionary. I have the English to Valerian dictionary. Then below that, I have a dictionary that says like, here are all the things that you can type in alphabetical order, in English alphabetical order, mm -hmm. and what the results will be. And then below that, I have all of the glyphs listed singly arranged by shape. Um, and so that makes it easy, depending on what information I want, I know which list to go to to get it. Um, what you see here on the screen is extraordinarily useful. So, I mean, she's gone through all the examples, and then the sound changes presumably would be listed somewhere, just in a big list. But this has it separated by language, so that you could see them by era and in order. Uh, you could also do it, uh, you know, just by era and then have it tagged. So it's like, here's, uh, and so like a big list, here's sound change number one, absolute. And then just in parentheses at the end, it applied to this language. Sound change number two, it applied to this language. Sound change number three applied to these languages and then by when. Um, and then also have, uh, and then have that, you know, separated by eras as well. Um, and I think it's uh, a really 
a really useful way to be able to actually use all this because that's of course the the next part it's like when you're sitting down for some conlanging you know whatever you happen to be doing whether you're creating words or doing a translation uh, it's pretty easy to uh, stay in the moment while you're doing that whether you're working for an hour or two or whatever the hard part is getting back into it when you get to it next whether it's a week later or whether it's even the next day sometimes you forget exactly what you were doing and why and um being able to write these instructions for yourself so that you can get back to the place that you were is crucial. And I think that this is extremely useful. This is one of the biggest problems that I had with um, Astapori Valerian, because I knew what the sound changes were, and I, and I wrote them down for the most part. But um, I kept mixing things up when I would go back to it because I would do things in the wrong order or I would start at the wrong stage. And the result would be something like a, a word where it's like, you know, you have like 10 words that work this way and two that work this other way, where it looks like the sound changes have been applied in opposite orders. So it's because they have been, because I worked with the wrong like input. Mm -hmm. Same thing going from Astapori to Miranese. Uh, sometimes I was working from High Valerian, sometimes I was working from Astapori. Um, and neither answer was wrong, uh, but, uh, you know, it needed to be done consistently. Mm -hmm. um, and that was the thing that I screwed up on because I didn't write it down clearly. Uh, and for, you know, non-conling reasons, um, I had to create both of these languages at the same time. But obviously I had to create High Valyrian first. And not only that, it was going to be the most important one to the series and also for the franchise moving forward. And I knew that. Like there's just a very small portion where you're going to be hearing this Astapori part. It was important for seasons three through five of Game of Thrones, but after that, probably never be heard again in the entire mm -hmm. history of the franchise. Um, so like I put all of my work into High Valyrian, but as a result, this background information got lost. And it's like, you think about this stuff, it's like, that's not the fun stuff. You want to show people the words, you want to show people translations. Yeah. They're not interested in seeing like all this information, but it's important for you, you know? And I think that we shirk on that a lot of times. And then we get ourselves in situations, which both of us have gotten into where it was like, what the hell is this? And how did we come up with that? In fact, just yesterday, I think somebody else on Discord, I think he solved my man problem for High Valyrian. Nice. I, because like I just didn't know what the hell it was, and then he was like, "Well, maybe the you know, Amanengi was like the the instrumental passive. There was man, that meant something like up, and then angles came from tongue, and that's how you got scoop because that's <gasps> what it. Yeah, and I'm like, that is what I did. I just forgot. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So now I got to go back and figure that out. Anyway, um, but yeah, so that was just, um, it, it's tough because uh, obviously a lot of people are going to be listening to this and not seeing it. I really encourage you to look at the PDF that's going to be produced. But um, these slides in particular are just a very nice reminder of how you can organize information for yourself to allow you to do the best job that you can do as a conlanger. Um, and I think that's really nice. I will say too, like, um, for me, it was important as I was doing this little example, um, because again, I was doing this all myself. So it wasn't like I had other people saying, oh, why don't you add this sound change or whatever? It's like, it all needed to come from, for me in the, the session where I was working on it. And so for me, it was super helpful to do it by stage first, because that meant I was only looking at, okay, well, what's going to be these sound changes. I've got my input up here at the top here's the changes, here's going to be the output. And so doing it by stage made me kind of like not so worried about things being repeated or even like in the same language, assimilation may happen twice, but it was different stages. And the speakers don't know that because that was, you know, a change that happened hundreds of years ago. And why wouldn't they assimilate again to make something else easier to say? And so like, it made me really focus on like, what changes do I want for this particular input? But like, if I didn't create these final lists of putting it all together, I wouldn't necessarily have like a full picture of like, wait, what did happen to language F? And so like doing it stage by stage helped me break it down in a way that made me less worried about repetition or less worried about things being distinct. 
Um, and then putting it all together as one form would make it so I can actually use them. Yeah, I want to uh, throw something else out here that might be not, it might be impossible, but I, I want to suggest it. I'm just throwing it out there into the ether. Maybe somebody can figure out how to do this. But there are some really cool things that you can do um, on, on the web, like with HTML or even with wiki uh, code that you can't do on a uh, word processing document that it would be nice to be able to do so. So like, for example, with this particular project, uh, you've got, um, well, five, maybe six different languages, depending on how you want to do it. Uh, and it's just not practical to have all of that information in one document. You really do want to separate it out into different documents for the languages. However, there's information that's relevant to all of them. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, it would be much easier to write up one list of sound changes um, and say which languages it's relevant for and have that information be on every single document, um, which is not something that you can do. You can do it on the web, though. It's called an include, uh, depending on, on which way you're doing it. But it would be, for example, like, let's say that ah, this is a very simple thing. And I did it for my website way, way, way back with that when. Let's say that you want the bottom of every single web page of yours to have the same text. Say this page is by David Peterson, whatever. You just create a small little HTML file. You type whatever you want to in there. And then with every page you create, you just create an include that says include this, uh, this information. And then if you want to change that later, you want to edit that information or you want to um, add to it, you just go to that one little file, change it, and it immediately populates on every single web page instantly, uh, rather than you having to go to every single web page and change it by hand. That would be perfect for this, because for your big list of sound changes and every single way you want to separate it, you want to be able to reference that very easily, but it'd be impossible to change it. Like you discover you want to change something on one document and be like, well, I want to add this. And then you have to go through all the other ones and change it as well. The only thing you can do is create another document that just has your sound changes or things like that. Mm -hmm. um, then you're working with a minimum of two documents every single time you're working on one of these languages, which can be cumbersome. Anyway, I nice think that also um, that would be helpful too. like, again, if you want to create vocabulary and you want, you know, this one to be an old root and, you know, because like as you're creating the language family, it's not like language A is like done and you've got the protoform completely filled out with every root that you're ever going to need. You may want to go and create a new root that applies to all the languages versus maybe you want to create a new word that was, you know, created after this other one had split off. And so it only applies to these three branches. And so it's like, to be able to like quickly do that without like you, it's like going in and entering like, okay, this route goes to all six, this one goes to, you know, this one, this one, and this one, um, like that, that would be really nice. Yep. But but yeah, that's beyond my capabilities. So I'm glad we just threw that out there as, hey, someone who has free time. Maybe, and... maybe the developer of the Polyglot app will somehow hear this and make maybe. that a feature. I'm still waiting. I think that's the future for Conlang documentation. It just needs some TLC, a lot of work and a lot of users to test it. Um, so um, I, I just wanted to say that um, this is probably one of the most brilliant pieces of conlang I've ever seen. I, I don't understand why you haven't even told me about this. I've never seen this map before. Like. What? Sorry. And, um, <laughs> and it's, it's difficult because I, I, I understand that you're working with a, a completely non-sentence here. Um, but I've now grown attached to these things. So I don't even know what the original looks like. <laughs> this all looks pretty cool. But um, this is this is just extraordinary. And honestly, I don't even know if I added very much. This probably should have just been a presentation by you. And I think actually if it was reworked, this could be a very good presentation to do generally, especially with crowd that's more linguistically diverse or or, or has uh, well actually even without it um if you you just have to kind of 
uh, dumb down the explanations a little bit, you know, not just refer to assimilation, but introduce the concept, you know, things like that. But um, yeah, this is just extraordinary. It's just extraordinary. And it was just sitting there in your back pocket. Well, the map was yeah. in the timeline. Yeah. All, all the rest has happened. You've seen me at my computer. All the rest happened there. Yeah, it's it's extraordinary. It's well, really, you. really, really good. And now I'm blushing. And on that note, <laughs> we have reached the end of this episode. Um, David's going to attempt. Oh, what did you just do? Did you end it? I don't think so. I just did stop share. Did you? Um, just can you get me over to Zoom? Here we go. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We are still recording. Yeah, there we yeah. go. Okay. Okay. So <laughs> David just like broke everything. Um, or didn't break everything, I guess. We just don't know what happened. Well, I, it was still playing the slideshow. What I should have done is just gone to the end and clicked out. And that, I, that yeah. would have helped, but oh, well, live and you learn. Um, thank you for being here and listening along. And we hope that it was helpful for anybody who had, you know, wondered or had been asking about um, language families. I hope that this helped. And stay grammar. Bye, everybody.